I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Recording live from Spotify Studios. In Los Angeles. We're on the road, baby. You are about to hear a express lane of celebrity memoir. LA is trafficy as all hell, but baby, we decided to sit in traffic for you. And instead, we are throwing you in a carpool lane, an express lane, really just the fastest little street you've ever been on. But in return, you have to listen to our music, the shit we pick. And there's no turning the radio off once you move past this point. I don't think that that was consistent all the way through. I think it started out with an express lane and then we were all stuck in traffic together. No, 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 no. We're stuck in traffic. That's the reading. Then why would they have to hear our music if they're not even in the car? Our music is us talking. They're in the fast car with our music on. And Ashley, do you have anybody to thank this week? Yes. Thank you to June's Journey for sponsoring this episode. Awaken your inner sleuth and step right into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Pick up where you left off to uncover new secrets or start your investigation today and download June's Journey, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. Two things real quick. I don't want to bog you down with up tops, but I will run through it if you have not gotten your tickets for Austin, Dallas, Portland, Seattle, New York. Please get them ASAP. I know Dublin and London sold out like in a day. Rapid fire. We're here in LA where we sold out in a week. Things go quicklier than you realize. Quicklier. (laughs) We're doing our best. Listen, we're out in LA. Things are languid. You can use language as you want. So please get your tickets now. Also, if you've ever been listening to me and Ashley talk about a book and thought, I actually have a much smarter opinion than they do right now. It's a shame that I don't have a podcast. We have the platform for you. We are doing an Honest to God book club. It is being hosted in Geneva where we will have a panel of literary experts doing a quick talk up top, 45 minutes about crying in HMART. And then we will break out into breakout groups on Zoom so that you and nine to 10 other people can all actually have a conversation about a book. It'll be such a fun place to meet other wormies, talk about books. Yeah, just a good community. It's a brutal winter out there, even in LA where it's sunny. The winter is hard. People can feel isolated. If you want to chat with a friend and not leave your home, If you want to read a book and talk about it with somebody, I know you guys love crying in HMART. You've been begging for it for years. Sign up in the link in our show notes if you want to be part of the breakout rooms on Zoom. And I can't wait to see you guys there. Me too. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you were to write a memoir, what would you call last week's chapter? I would call it, wait a second, has my memory been wiped? I don't think I could write a memoir, I've decided. And that's what my memoir would be about. It would be about how I actually don't remember a single thing from my entire life. We are in Los Angeles right now. For those of you who don't know, I lived here for five years, five whole years. And whenever I'm driving around town, I'm always like, it feels like a weird deja vu situation, not like a memory, but like a thing where in a past life I've been here before. It's really bizarre every time I'm here. I can't explain the feeling, but I think I have no memories. I believe that. (laughs) I feel like you got a real SpongeBob situation in there where there's just like a file of facts and somebody's just being like, LA, LA, we misplaced it. There was something here. I feel like that about huge chunks of my life. It's really bizarre. I feel like unless I can't see something directly in front of me, I forget that it exists. That's why I'm such a bad texter. How could you possibly be a bad texter? You're looking at your phone constantly. When are you not looking at your phone? I'm not looking at my texts. I'm looking at TikTok. (laughs) Claire, if you were to write a chapter about your life last week, what would you call it? I'd call it Back to the Drawing Board. I don't know if you guys saw on Instagram, but I did a review of all the things I bought at New Year's to try and make my new year new self more productive, and almost none of them have worked. Awesome. I don't believe in drinking a gallon of water. 
my alarm clock, not only does it not wake me up, but then somebody DM me was like, I bought that alarm clock and it doesn't even keep time good. It like loses a minute every week. Wait, how is that possible? Can I say the actual science and technology that goes into clocks and timekeeping is incredibly advanced. And that's why watches are such a thing of science and beauty because perpetual motion is impossible. I would love to be a mouse who lives in a clock. You would not be good at that job. I don't want to keep time in the clock. I just want to live in there. What are you, a horse in Central Park? You think you should just get to live somewhere fancy for free? Yeah, You can't live in a clock and not contribute to the community. If you're in there, you got to be winding that thing. I would dust. The inside? Yeah. Where would the dust go out of? Where does dust ever go when you're dusting? You just bust it around. <laughs> you stir it up. <laughs> anyway, so back to the drawing board. I'm looking into a new alarm clock. I really want to get one for free, so I've been DMing some companies. <laughs> if you work for a very specific alarm clock company, check your DMs and see if I reached out to you and see if you can hook me up. I'll talk about it all the time, nonstop. We have a really exciting book this week. Out today, Pamela Anderson's memoir, Love, Pamela. I am so excited about this book. If you guys don't know, we actually already read her ex, Tommy Lee's book. We read it about a year and a half ago, I'd say in February of 2022. Oh, we read it exactly one year ago. Oh, my God. We couldn't have done better timing if we tried. His book was the source material for the Pam and Tommy Hulu series that came out last year that was hotly debated. We tried to watch it for the Patreon. I think we watched a few episodes and quit because it was deeply upsetting. Famously, Pamela has said they did not get my blessing. That did not tell my story. And she did not watch Pam and Tommy. So she has come out and told her side of the story. And I have to say it is quite the fucking tale. When you go, who should write a memoir? Pam Anderson. Pam Anderson. So this book was originally written as a long poem. A 50-page poem. And her editor sat her down and said, I think you should add sentences. And she said, no, 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 no. She goes, sentences get misconstrued. And her editor was like, actually, I think if you tell them what happened in plain English, that'll help you get your point across better than just words. She jokes and says in the acknowledgments that this is how she talks. She's a real stream of consciousness. Go with the flow. This makes me think of that. And she's known for sending out emails that just are inscrutable. But I think she did a good job. And I'm excited to talk about it. And throughout the book, we have pieces of that poem interlaced. And so this book starts out with about eight pages of poem. I guess actually 13 pages. And we're going to read a couple of the key excerpts. So it begins, the lines blur between dreams and reality or where I end and the world begins. To live and dream is a wicked dance. My dreams often come true, a curse and a blessing. I really think that that is an interesting way to start it off. And I have to say, as I read through this book, I go, I couldn't agree more. This is really the story of a true, honest to God, free spirit. She talks a lot about in this book feeling like she has no borders and that she's just molecules floating around. And I am convinced of it. I agree. I think that's a perfect way to describe what her experience on this planet has been. She is so open to new experiences. I've just never seen a truer embodiment of going with the flow. Yeah, she says this book is about a true love story, the love of self. And she says, I was and still am an exceptionally easy target. And I'm proud of that. My defenses are weak. I'm not bitter. I don't have the craving to be hard, heard, or taken seriously. I prefer to be fluid and free without boundaries, leaving life to chance and destiny. I think that's such an enlightened way to look at your life. You say that all the time where you say, I like that I'm easily scammed because it means I trust. She has a real perspective and a way of going about life that has brought to her what it is that she wanted from life, which is to see and learn and hear and experience as much as possible. You could almost draw a line between the physical self and the spiritual self for Pam. 
And she very early on just said, my body is an object that will get me places that then my soul can suck up as much as it can from this world. And the way that that is like hoisted upon her and then she takes it in and makes it work for herself and like chooses to live in that is very interesting. I don't know that it's good for everyone. I think this book is an interesting triad that you put in the triangle of a Shania Twain and Jenna Jameson. I think it worked for Pam. I think that she is an exceptional person in terms of being able to do that. (laughs) I mean, we see so many people in real life, people that we know, and in these books where they say, I'm going to just go down this road to get what I can get out of it, and then I'll be able to do what I want. But then going down that road, nothing is ever enough, and they never take the time to be like, okay, now what do I actually want? She says, I devour books and art. They shape me, a lump of clay waiting to be sculpted. I pour all I can into me and wake up a new person every day, achy, ravenous, and reaching for the watering can. Though this is a serious book about abuse, struggle, and overcoming, I hope it is also entertaining and, more importantly, empowering. I also think it's interesting that she says most people's lives go unrecorded or worse, unlived. It's quite therapeutic going through the archives I've survived. It's almost like I lived my life to write about it. And then she says, I lit the fuse and it took off without me like a wild firecracker you can't catch. And she has this real, a spark went off and then my life took off narrative running throughout the entire book that is really interesting because I actually do feel like she caught it. She is one of those people where to understand her story, you just have to give in to the fact that she was magnetically beautiful and appealing and charming and the law of attraction works for her in a level that most people just can't even believe. Do you know what I mean? Like she is almost like a magical fictional creature in that she went to Hollywood and it all just worked out. She walked into a room and it all just worked out. Like she has the most of that it quality. She grew up on a very small island surrounded by very few people. And once the greater community saw her, once she lived in a slightly larger city where there was an ability to find her, she was found. I was born in 1967, the summer of love, a centennial baby, arriving a healthy seven pounds and seven ounces on Canada's 100th birthday. Vancouver Island was formed by volcano 150 million years ago, and First Nations people lived here thousands of years before Columbus set foot on the island. History is often rewritten to create heroes out of monsters, or vice versa. She was born, and because she was born on the centennial, she was in the newspaper. And I really do think that sets the tone for her whole life, just her being. Every time she shows up somewhere, it makes the news. So her parents had her young. Her mom was 17 and her dad was 19. And they are from a small island off the coast of Vancouver. It's like a very tiny town. He was a hot bad boy. She was a beautiful good girl. Soda pops and sock hops. Yeah, drive-ins, hot rods, burgers split at the local Wings Cafe. They fell in love. They were obsessed with each other. The mother got pregnant, so they had a shotgun wedding. And six months later, Pamela was born. My mom gave us everything, and my dad's love was different. Clever genius, always slightly angry, but mostly frustrated with himself, I think. Love is what saved him. They were the missing pieces of each other. So her parents had a very chaotic and intense and abusive relationship. And this was her picture of love. They're still together this day. And she's like, they're so happy. Everyone calmed down. It all worked out. You could not keep them apart. But it did set up for her this idea of normalizing abuse and also that love is just extreme highs and lows constantly. And anything short of that is not real. She says they were kind of poor. They couldn't always afford to eat well, but they could always afford to be beautiful. There's no excuse not to look good, my mom would say. Her hair never suffered, even if she had to. Her dad was a real thinker. She says that he loved to read, and her grandpa was also somebody who loved mythology and philosophy and taught her to be agnostic. She says, I was taught to question authority, and so I question everything. I was raised in a way that nobody was telling me what to do or how to be or how to think or what to believe, and I'm eternally grateful for that. It's the ultimate gift. 
She says, we didn't have much growing up, but mom was a magical mood setter. They lived in a camp where there was a bunch of little houses that her grandparents owned and her and her family lived in one and they would rent out the others. And because they're on this gorgeous island, they spent all of their time outside just digging for clams and gardening and in the ocean and scamping around. She had a younger brother, Jerry, who was four years younger than her. And she says they just spent all their time outside together playing. I feel like it's such an interesting contrast for their way of thinking to be question everything. There is no authority, but then also be beautiful no matter what. My mom always said there's no such thing as a natural beauty. It takes at least an hour in front of the mirror. You are more powerful if you are pretty. She just talks about how much time her mom spent taking care of herself. Meanwhile, Pamela was a tomboy. Well, I think it's because you're talking about two different parents. So I think the message from her mom was be beautiful. That's your greatest strength in life. That's how you get in the door. And then her dad and her grandpa were people who I think weren't able to go on to like college and get higher educations. Her grandfather was a logger. I don't even know what her dad did. He seemed like he bounced between jobs, but they read a lot. And so they were people who had strong philosophical beliefs, question everything, read everything. And then her mom was like, but also keep your lipstick on. So those were the two dominant forces and messages that were being fed to her growing up. And I think you see that in her as an adult. And from an early age, she was just trying everything. She would take piano lessons through a family friend. If one of her neighbors took dance class, they would come home and teach her dance. She took acrobatics. She was just interested in anything and everything. Yeah, she wanted to learn to ice skate, but they couldn't afford lessons. So she taught herself and then got into the ice capades. She was super active, super energetic, always running around, a tomboy. She was not afraid of any animals. She was just like a real outdoors kid. Her dad was very into hunting and One time she saw a deer hanging in a shed with its head cut off. She's been a vegetarian since she was six. I convinced dad never to hunt again by inflicting as much emotional trauma on him as I could. I made him sorry till my pigtails stood on end, fountaining tears, begging him. He promised me he'd never hunt again and he didn't. I recognized what little power I had. It was the start. So that was her life. It was just a lot of being outdoors and being with her two parents who were just like young and in love, but it was volatile. Family rolls around. They were always having parties and having their friends over and doing clam bakes. I know it's literally not America, but it feels very like old school Americana. She had a real community-based upbringing, although her vision of love was still very skewed. But I do think it was a town with a lot of troubles. And she says at a young age, I learned that people are mostly awful. Babysitters even worse. So she's molested by a babysitter at a very young age quite repeatedly for a while. Yeah, her parents loved the babysitter. They thought she was a really sweet girl. But of course, she was coming over and molesting Pam and she hated her. And then she talks about the abuse that was at home. We knew not to make noise or else. When he got like this after too many, dad would call my mom names. Name calling was something I didn't like and I witnessed it far too often. Times like this, I'd take Jerry outside and sit on the stairs. When we couldn't hear yelling anymore, we'd assume they had made up. We would usually walk in on them making out on the couch or on the table or up against the fridge. I'd quickly pull Jerry by the hand outside and find something else to do. I remember my mom crying a lot, always quietly in the bathroom with the door closed. I'd watch my mom trying to tease her hair and fix her makeup, the mascara running down her face. The mirror was on the wall over the toilet, so she had to kneel on the seat to see herself with her makeup and hairbrushes, lipstick and pale pink comb splayed out on the back of the tank. I wonder if she knew I was watching. My beautiful, sad mom made me a melancholy child. Despite the fact that things seemed pretty violent and dangerous at her house, she was a real troublemaker. And I think you can already see early on her thinking that love comes from these extreme highs and lows and wanting to instigate these giant reactions from her parents. So she said that she was always kind of a bad kid. Some nights I'd pretend to be sleeping while I waited for my parents to go to bed. Then I'd get up quietly, very difficult to do, climbing down our clunky red iron bunk bed. And I'd almost sleepwalk to the kitchen and put the stopper in the sink, turn on all the water and go back to bed, flooding it. Or I'd mix all my mom's spices into the butter, then butter the cat. My dad was an early riser and I'd wake up to his yelling, Pamela, 
It was an exciting feeling. I knew I was in big trouble, but I had started getting used to the belt. It was worth it. I didn't say much to anyone about my home life. It was sensitive, and I innately understood that it was just what we had been dealt. I was grateful for what we had. I could not have survived my adult life without the strength that I learned to muster early on. At one point, her dad drowns a bag of cats in front of her. But after she was specifically told not to bring these kittens home, and when they went out, she brought them all in, and when she got caught, they got drowned, and she goes, it was my fault. I was bad. I left my body, floated to my friend Sarah's house. Yeah, she really takes to blaming herself for abuse and trauma. She craves the highs and lows and then internalizes the consequences. She loved school and she got good grades. The funny thing was I was painfully shy in many ways, but I liked the attention on my terms. I didn't have many friends. One-on-one wasn't my strength, but I could perform to a whole classroom. So finally, one day against this babysitter who's abusing her, she retaliates. She screams at her, clumsily stabbed her with a candy cane stripe pen. And I said, I hope you die. And then ran for my life. Soon after, she died in a car accident. I couldn't tell my parents that I'd killed her with my magical mind or that she was touching me and making me touch her in ways I didn't want to remember. I forgot about it all, pushed it away, and hoped that no one would ever find out. I carried that my entire young life. I was very careful about what I wished for from then on out. So her whole childhood, her mom is constantly getting her and her brother and leaving their dad in the middle of the night when things are getting too bad and he's too drunk and he's too abusive. They would go and stay at a friend's house. And it was almost like a joke to him. She says that often they would hide at one of her mom's friend's house and she would have to climb into a tree to keep lookout for her dad because her dad was known for getting drunk with his friends, finding the car and stealing the car, leaving them stranded at the friend's house. So finally, at one point, they leave for about a year. They lived off of food stamps and powdered milk. I'll never forget the chalky taste. I dreaded my cereal in the morning. They move near her mom's sister on mainland Vancouver. Her mom works as a janitor at a hospital doing random shifts late at night. This is where she starts her lifelong problem with passing out. She has low blood pressure. She just faints all the time. I felt invisible at times, just particles of energy that people walked through. I felt like I had no edges, no borders to contain me, melting, spilling everywhere. We stayed in Kamloops for what felt like a year before dad found us. He called and I happened to pick up the phone. He told me he'd been in a car accident, but he was okay and doing better. He wanted to come get us. I wanted him to come get us too. With my hand covering the receiver so no one could hear, looking around cautiously, I whispered to my dad where we were. So the dad comes to collect them. She says that the mom was surprised when he showed up at the door, but underneath the shock was a sense of relief. And when they get back, her dad has stopped drinking. And she says because of this, it was less volatile all the time, but there was just a different energy and she felt like she didn't know her dad anymore and they didn't know how to communicate. I was starting to think I liked my dad better when he drank. This was less interesting being normal. I wasn't comfortable being comfortable. So the pattern has just already been set. So at school, I think she has a hard time socially, maybe. She's not an outcast. She just doesn't have close friends. And a lot of this, I think, comes from her insecurity about her home life. She tells a story about one time getting up on the desk and inviting everybody over to go ice skating that weekend. And only one kid who was new to town actually made the mistake of showing up. And when they showed up, she was horrified. And the mother realized what was going on and took the kid home immediately. But she's like, everybody else knew I was lying because everybody knew what my family was like. They can't have people over. So I think that really isolated her. But also she says she developed very late. She didn't get her period until she was 18 years old. And the body that she's now known for, she didn't actually develop until she was in her 20s. And she says, I look no more than 10 years old, even with makeup. I wouldn't have passed for 13. I was barely, if even, a teenager. One night, however, though, a friend who's dating an older guy takes her all dressed up to go meet this older guy and his roommate. The friend goes upstairs with the boy she's seeing and leaves the roommate and Pamela alone, and he forces himself on her. I couldn't see. I couldn't breathe. I was blinded by pain. I ran and locked myself in the bathroom to inspect what had happened to me. There was blood and other self. I felt sick as I cleaned myself up, trying to get it together. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody. I was in shock, falling apart, molecules, dust, liquid, my life evaporating. After I thought everyone could tell, like I had it tattooed on my forehead, I was sure I looked different. I thought I was bad, and I was ashamed. It hurt me a lot keeping the secret. In high school, she gets a serious boyfriend. His nickname was Boogeyman Jack. 
We were always making out, kissing or fighting. He was handsome, a bad boy, a hot rod enthusiast with a hot temper. And their relationship is volatile. He would get mad at her and scream at her and attack her. At one point, he started kicking me over and over when they were in the car until he physically kicked me out of the car while he was driving. He pushed me with his foot so hard, I had no choice but to open the door when the car was moving and roll straight into a ditch. Mind you, I landed a perfect gymnast dismount at high speed. She ran home and her dad sees her and he's like, oh, hell no. So he goes to, you know, knock some sense into the guy. I don't think that does anything. No. I mean, it stays crazy forever. She goes, as I matured, I noticed most of my boyfriends were bad and progressively got worse. I often wondered why. Did I turn them into assholes? Was I doing something wrong? Did I make them crazy? They would turn violent, mean, cruel so quickly. I felt I did everything to try to get them to love me by being accommodating, generous, or just being the comedian. Laughter always being an easy way for me to cut the tension. So she stops dating Jack and she meets another new kid who comes to town and he seems like he's going to be a great protector. He was in a gang. I was inspired and thought he'd be good security because I was still afraid of my last boyfriend, but Billy was his own kind of bad boy. So he and his friends are stealing. They would leave Pamela in the car while they went to rob people. And then one night, they gang raped her. It got worse. There was at least four, maybe six boys. I blacked out. And she says she was so tiny in high school. She was five foot two and weighed less than 100 pounds. She was just like this tiny girl just going through life. And I feel like the abuse and the violence was everywhere. And it was so not unquestioned because obviously her dad is like, he can't treat you like that. But her dad treated her mom like that. This is all she saw. I just felt like everywhere she turned, that was the norm. And I don't even know if she knew at the time how bad it was. As her brother, who had always kind of been her pee in a pod, grew up, he started turning to drugs and he is overdosing. And I think they slowly split apart. And she begins to realize that if she's going to save herself, she just has to look out for herself. I fell deeply into my imagination, subconscious, a dream world. I started to read more, going to the library and devouring anything I could find on psychology, philosophy, poetry, trying to understand why people were so fucked up. I was hungry to know how people from all over the world from across time experienced love and survived it. She graduates high school and I never considered college. I didn't even know anyone who had ever gone. I was just happy to finish high school. So now that she's out of high school, her dad wants her to pay rent to stay home. So she leaves. She gets an apartment and furnishes it with a credit card and then finds out that you have to pay credit cards. She also was like, I had to leave because my mom was constantly trying to leave my dad and it was just a place I could not be anymore. As she got older, she started trying to step in to save her mom and she realizes that she can't save her mom and the harder she tries, the worse she's going to make it for everyone. She tells one specific story where her dad is fighting with her mom and holding her face over the open flame of a stove. And so she goes and she decks her dad in the face. Then he kind of comes to his senses and it breaks everything up. And the next day, everyone goes back like it's normal. And her mom is almost upset that she hit the dad. She says, when I decided to leave was when I learned and accepted that I can't change people. I can't save people, only love them. I can only change myself and my circumstances. My mom was never going to leave my dad and my interfering was only making things worse. This is when I learned the art of leaving. I knew if I didn't get away, I'd be no help to anyone. Freeing yourself is mandatory before you can help to free others. And I always knew that when I got on my feet, I'd come back for Jerry. So she leaves home and she stays relatively close. She says, I love my dad in all his imperfections. I get it. Nothing ever made me love him less. Nothing ever will. There's no part of her that's like, oh, I can't be here anymore. I'm going to cut out the toxic people in my life. She's just like, I can't physically be in this house and try to change their relationship, but I love them and I will always be close to my family. And to this day, she has always been close to them. And then she goes into how her grandfather, who she loved more than anybody and who really gave her this thirst and hunger for knowledge and literature, was very abusive to her father growing up, even though he was so kind to her. And she says, my dad took the brunt of it being the oldest boy. That's no excuse, but it left an undeniable mark on him. Later on, I could appreciate the full story. The best advice my parents gave me was no advice. They admitted to knowing nothing of my world, my journey, my dreams, my passions and purpose. They had no way of bailing me out. They listened. They worried with me at times. 
They loved me the best they could, but it was up to me to find my way through. When I understood that, I was even more free to create my own life. It was a blessing. I think it is very interesting that she's able to recognize that her family has endured generations of abuse. And instead of holding that black and white, you either cut them out or you don't, she's able to understand who they are and be sad about certain things, but like still love them. Yeah, she has this ability to save herself. And in removing herself from the situation, I think that's what she's talking about in the art of leaving. She really taught herself at a young age, I can't change who they are or where they come from or who they're going to be. All I can do is save myself and need less from them so that I can take the good and save myself from the bad. She goes, I ask a lot of the people around me, but not more than I ask of myself. And I think that that's true. I think she's able to say, I want to have parents and they have good qualities. I will break the cycles of abuse that they have not broken for me, but I will recognize that clearly in some part of the foundation, they set me up to be able to do that. They did give me some tools that helped me to be better than they were. So she moves to Victoria and she moves in with her great auntie V, who is the classic cool ass sexy aunt. Everyone's got a slutty aunt. She said a woman should have a few men in her life, one for conversation, one for presence, one for sex. It was impossible to make one man responsible for it all. So she comes home one day and finds Auntie V in lingerie. And Auntie V is like, can you come back later? And she's like, I got to find my own apartment. (laughs) I am cramping Auntie V's style. And that is not nice. So she moves in with her friend Mel. This reminded me so much of Mariah Carey because she's like, Mel let me sleep in her closet on a mattress at a very discounted rate. It was what I could afford and it was all I needed and I was grateful for it. To earn my keep, I was the one who did the housework, cleaning the toilets, doing dishes. If anyone needed anything from laundry to errands, they'd leave me a note on the fridge. Mel was taking advantage of you. The fact that you were paying at all and also their full-time live-in housekeeper to live in the closet. That's not a good deal, my friend. (laughs) So she's got this job as a hostess. She talks about how she would go. The keg had a salad buffet on the weekends and I was allowed to eat from it at the end of the night. I lived off their loaded baked potatoes and would always bring some back to share along with armfuls of roses from customers. My roommates would just roll their eyes. And when I read that, I was like, why are they fucking rolling their eyes? Here's this girl who's paying to clean up after them, bring them loaded baked potatoes, which is my favorite food. I'm sorry that she's getting roses. Why are you so mad? And then as I kept going, 30 pages later, I was like, okay, I could see how this would get annoying. Pamela lives just such a different life than every other human being on earth. She just has a magnetic beauty. I don't think it's normal for the hostess to get armfuls of roses. I've worked at many a restaurant. And more than that, I've been inside of many a restaurant. I don't think I've ever seen a rose. I don't think I've ever seen somebody give the staff flowers, let alone armfuls regularly. And I think Pamela was just like, oh, yeah, I just work at the kind of restaurant where the men bring roses for the staff. And it's like nobody works at the type of restaurant. It's just a you thing. Okay, so she ends up getting a boyfriend who is a photographer. And it's interesting because they never view her as a subject. She never wants to get photographed by him. He never even suggests photographing her. I think that this is a real pattern in her life, though, of men not wanting to use her as a product, but wanting to like keep her as a wife. Yes. Like the minute a man sees her and is able to capture her, he's like, I can't let anyone else see you or else you will leave. Everybody knows that everybody is seeing what they're seeing. Everyone sees her and they say, I've literally found gold. I have to keep it hidden like a dragon. And so this guy wants to marry her. They get engaged. She goes to a football game with her friend. They wear Labatt crop tops with Enter the Blue Zone written across her boobs. And she ends up on the Jumbotron. And the entire stadium goes insane. They bring her down onto the field. She becomes the Blue Zone girl from that point forward. They are obsessed with her. She ends up getting a Labatt commercial and a poster. And the network began using my image in Monday Night Football ads. From one time being spotted on a medium large scale on a jumbotron at a stadium. Things went from zero to 100 after that. So from her Labatt's commercial and poster, Hugh Hefner's people call her. 
So she gets a call and they're like, we'd love for you to come down and test for the October 89 cover. Of course, she gets a call from Playboy and Michael came flying in from the bathroom, his eyes flashing wildly. He ran into the kitchen and threw a tray of silverware on my head. I ducked behind the counter. Pam just goes, really? Are you sure? I asked. It's up to Mr. Hefner. We'll shoot it and see, she said. Call me when it's for real, I said and hung up. She just has this abundance mentality where she's like, if it's meant for me, it'll come to me. So they call back immediately and say, we promise it's for real. And so she goes down to Playboy and the rest is kind of history. Yeah. I mean, she just never goes back. She goes down to shoot the October 89 cover. Playboy was an honor and a privilege. I never thought of it as immoral or salacious, but the unforeseen downside was that it may have set me up. It was my choice. I accepted my fate. It gave some people the impetus, sadly, to treat me with that respect, but I was more used to that. I wasn't going to be taken down. I'd already survived to this point. Nothing could hurt me more than I had already been hurt. Playboy was empowering. It helped me in ways I would never articulate. I took my power back. I had to. It was a chance to realize a new life, a new adventure. So she gets to L.A. They're putting her up in the Bell Age Hotel in Beverly Hills. It's beautiful. She has room service. She'd never had room service before. It's Gay Pride Month, I guess. And she's like, oh, my God, gay people exist. And they walk around just partying. And she calls her mom and all she could say was, oh, sweetie, it sounds to me like you've arrived. I found that so cute. It is so cute. And she's so excited. So she's a big reader at this point. And she says on the way down, she had read Out on a Limb by Shirley MacLaine, which was her favorite book at the time. And down in the hotel restaurant was Shirley MacLaine. And she was like, this is a sign. So she goes to the mansion. She shows up in a Metallica t-shirt and acid wash jeans. And she goes there and everybody's dressed to the nines. And Hef comes over and is like, how you doing? We're going to take care of you. And she just feels at ease immediately. She's like, this is where I want to be. I mean, right away, they tell her Playboy's doors are open to you. I think she still to this day thinks that this is the treatment that you get when you are welcomed into the Playboy family. From reading other Playboy memoirs, this is not the treatment you get when you first enter the Playboy mansion. Marilyn, who's the secretary, tells her right away, like, I'll take care of you. I'll handle everything. And also, if you need clothes for literally anything, we have a big closet. I will say this was Playboy in the 80s. That's true. I think it might have been in this heyday, whereas by the time that Bridget and Holly Madison got there, I think it was on its last legs and they breathed like one final life it shouldn't have even gotten into them. But I definitely think it was in its heyday when it was in its prime when Pam got there. So right away, she meets this man named Mr. Peters, who was a producer for Rain Man, Batman, A Star is Born. I never come here, but I'm so glad I did. When I saw you, all I could see were teeth and a halo. And she's like, somebody had to explain who he was and what a producer was. And so she goes and has lunch with him. And immediately he's like, just move into this extra house I have. And she moves into a house in Beverly Hills next door to Ronald Reagan complete with a full staff. And he just puts her up there for free and sends her gifts every day. I felt like I'd stepped into another dimension. Was this even real? How did I get here? It wasn't so far from home, but it was so far out of reach for a girl like me. He was just sending her gifts from Cartier, from Mugler, from Chanel. Just every day something would show up free for her. So then she does her Playboy cover. I was 22 when I arrived in LA with a cute little body. I had never thought I was sexy. I was only just becoming a woman. I was way behind others my age. I still looked like a baby. I never felt beautiful a day in my life. It wasn't my place or my role. It felt like beautiful girls were a different species, but it didn't matter. I knew I had stranger gifts than beauty. At this point, you were spotted on a Jumbotron, given a beer commercial deal, and then immediately flown out to shoot the cover of Playboy. You must get an inkling by now, surely. And so she goes to do her cover, and the hair and makeup people are asking all these questions about herself and what her life was like and what her family was like. I told her I was nervous, told her about how I'd left my fiancé, how he was unkind. I'm sure she relayed all of it to Marilyn and Hef. I could tell they were digging, and I was offering what they needed. It may have been an unconscious cry for help. They got it loud and clear, and from that point on, Playboy was my family. 
And I think this is what makes Pamela so different and extraordinary is that so many bad things have happened to her at this point. So many things that should have hardened her that don't harden her. She's always open and vulnerable. She still wants to trust and love so much. And she says from an early age she learned that everybody was awful and not trustworthy. But yet, time and time again, she can't help but trust everyone. I mean, it goes back to that part from the beginning where she says, my defenses are weak. I'm not bitter. I don't have the craving to be hard. You know, she says, I learned from a young age that most people are awful, but she doesn't ever act like most people are awful. Her behavior and her openness and I think her energy is hoping for the best. Yeah. And she like can't turn that off in herself. So then she talks about the first shoot she did and she says, this is one of those crucial moments, the ones I soon became addicted to, where she becomes brave in her head and she decides she has to become somebody else. What I had been taught was a good girl's behavior. I wondered how far has that gotten me? Nowhere. I wanted to break free, break the rules. I'd been programmed to believe I wasn't as good as others. Why did I think it was so bad to be self-aware or even sexy? What was this fucking shyness? It was paralyzing. A battle raged inside me. I was torn between hurt and confusion while trying to save my own life. My self-image was so corrupt. It was difficult to accept when I later came to terms with that. I realized I was a work in progress and that my past may have had a serious impact on my self-esteem. She also talks about during the shoot, Tracy, the hairdresser, comes over. She touched my boob to enhance my bony cleavage. They asked me to soften my stomach, saying my ribs were too sharp. I started to feel nauseous faint. I had to stop. I ran to the bathroom and got sick. My makeup was ruined. I couldn't believe a woman had touched me there. I just couldn't. Luckily, they got the shot in the first roll of film. So the shoot is done. Marilyn takes her to lunch, and Jimmy Iovine comes up to her and is like, Can you sing? I burst out laughing, but then told him I'd played the saxophone in school. And he said, Oh, we should have lunch. Margaritas. My office is just there. Marilyn told him she'd call him and arrange it. Darling, you must know this never happens. Not like this. You're very special. Now about your plane ticket home. We want you to stay. There is a life for you here. She said that she was never wrong about these things. Then she pushed further. So they offer her the centerfold shoot for February. And it's a huge deal. And she calls her mom and she goes, what should I do? And her mom just says, do it, sweetheart. I'd do it if I were asked. Don't look back. Stay there. Don't come home. Live a new life. After this Playboy shoot, casting directors are obsessed with her. She's just like living this life and people are banging down her door. And mostly she's just John's pet. They're not having sex, but he's just keeping her kept, buying her clothes, inviting over for dinner, showing her off. And she has one famous actor, Mario Van Peebles, who's in 21 Jump Street, come and take her on a date. And he's like, listen, you have to get out of this situation. It's not safe for you. He had more questions, but I finally said, this happens to everyone. And he said, no, this does not happen to anyone. This is the armfuls of roses as a hostess. It doesn't happen to everyone. So she takes everything she has and rents an apartment that's like an hour outside of L.A. At first, she like hears Mario, but doesn't leave right away. Her mom even comes. John kept telling my mom that we were in love, but I didn't think of him that way. It was becoming awkward. I knew I couldn't do it any longer. Before my mom went home, she looked at me knowingly and just said, follow your heart. So she buys a $500 BMW, moves into a shitty apartment, and it's just like, it's okay. I'll just live off the money I make from Playboy. She ends up saying yes to the centerfold, which John had asked her to say no to. She did get out before it sounds like anything bad happened. But obviously with him keeping her in a home and keeping her dressed in designer clothes, he expected to have a say in who she is and what she does. And he told her to say no to the Playboy centerfold, which is just such an annoying fucking thing to me that a man can meet a woman at the Playboy mansion and then be like, now that you're mine, Playboy is beneath you. So she leaves and she goes, it was not easy for a girl like me in my circumstance living off little money I had from Playboy to have enough self-worth to leave someone who was willing to take care of me while the future was a question mark. I had no fallback position. There was no going back. I was willing to take the risk and bet on myself. It was common knowledge that these rich and powerful men ate new girls up, promised them the world and spat them out when it was time to move on to the next starlet. I'm glad it never came to that. And it just would have. Yeah, it would. And I think she was smart to leave. I think it's really impressive that she had the foresight to say right now he is offering me so much shit. But right now I also have a lot of people knocking on my door offering me a lot of shit. And this is kind of the easier route to take. 
Yeah, I think she just doesn't even care that much about fancy stuff. She's really driven by wanting love. She's really driven by wanting love and wanting freedom. At this point, she's also reading a ton and she gets really into Jungian analysis and she's working with all these people and reading all these books. And she starts to work with this Dr. Silvers. He's like a Jungian expert. I don't know if I'm saying that right. She's reading the drama of the gifted child and the hero with a thousand faces. He encouraged me to draw Mandela's and to peek into my psyche. Our meetings stimulated me. I started to realize how my dreams, my imagination and real life were all of equal importance. As much as I was pouring into myself, I felt I was pouring out. I had been working on myself my whole life, but there were times I abandoned myself too. A constant dichotomy. So she's meeting all these cool new people in LA and she says, the knowledge and exposure to new and radical perspectives helped me find my way. As crooked as the path was, I was learning and growing, thorns and all. She shoots her Playboy centerfold and she starts to really come into herself. She starts to really feel herself. I did what I thought all models would do, but a heightened version. I was wild and uninhibited, rolling, laughing, playing to the camera, pulling the cold, wet silk across my skin, goosebumps biting my lip. It was authentic, all happening on camera in real time. Hef called me the DNA of Playboy. Her full-time job is basically Playboy. She's traveling all the time, doing all these promos for them. And one thing she never did is she would never have sex for money. I remember being in an appearance in another city with a few playmates when one of the male guests asked me to get in a jacuzzi with him and offered me $10,000. I said that sounds like more than just a jacuzzi, no thanks. The girls got mad at me after I told Hef. I became known as the tattletale, but for a good reason. I was worried about their safety. Unfortunately, some felt like they needed to make a little money on the side. It was not typical, though, and Hef would have been through the roof if he knew the extent of it. There were explicit rules in place. Playboy did everything they could to protect us. She has this real way of protecting the men that she likes. For her to be like, Hef was just looking out for us. That's not true. Hef was not looking out for them any more than John was looking out for her. These women are his property. He saw them as a real, like, if you're being used up, you're no good to me anymore. He was really into his girls being like young, innocent girls who just happened to be naughty one time. But I find it very interesting and damning that to him, Pamela Anderson is the DNA of Playboy because she's this like innocent, young looking girl who's becoming so sexual on camera. But what she actually is, is like a horribly traumatized woman. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that the person that he thinks best represents Playboy has had these horrific sexual abuses in her past. There is not a bad word about Hef in this book. And we know Hef is not a glowing protector of women who just want to express themselves sexually. And then also, she was tattling on the other girls. Like, who are you to say that these girls can't have sex for money? It's a bit Holly Madison was like, well, what I'm doing is okay, but these other girls are whores. She tells a story about a party with Jack Nicholson. I don't want to give the wrong impression. Playboy was no orgy. Okay. She's talking about walking through a party at the Playboy Mansion where people are just like all in the corner touching each other. It was rare to walk in on someone in the act, but people might bring girlfriends for a little extra fun. I mean, this is the kind of secret slut shaming of being like, Playboy wasn't an orgy. It was committed people enjoying sexuality together in their monogamous relationships. And this is where I came upon the actor from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mr. Nicholson had two beautiful women with him. Were they both his girlfriends, Pam? Maybe. They were all giggling and kissing up against the wall, sliding all over each other. I walked by to use the mirror, bending over the sink to fix my lip gloss, trying not to look, but I couldn't help myself and caught his eye in the reflection. I guess that got him to the finish line because he made a funny noise, smiled, and said, thanks, dear. He's told that story a few times, so I don't feel bad repeating it. Jack Nicholson's name has come up every time we've read a hot girl book. I just love that she's like, well, I would have never told this story, but I don't think he would mind. I wonder if he considered you when he told the story a few times. I saw him years later at a dinner party, and he asked me with a mischievous smile if I remembered how we met. Really? How could I forget? So here she is out in L.A. just killing it. Everybody's obsessed with her. Casting directors for TV and film are calling the Playboy office looking for me after my first convert came out. I mean, she can't walk through a studio lot without someone pulling her in for another audition. She's walking through a parking lot and they're like, we've got to see you for this role. So they bring her in and she doesn't even know what it is. She's like, they just say you're late for hammer time. And she's like, what? So they bring her in. They just say count backwards from 10 and say your name. 
I don't know what I did. That was so special. Maybe the look of confusion, a deer in the headlights, but I got the job. It was Lisa for the Tool Time Girl. So she's on home improvement. Her first day, Tim Allen flashes her in the hallway because he's like, I've seen you naked and now it's tit for tat. And she's like, well, cool. What the fuck, Tim Allen? I laughed uncomfortably. It was the first of many bizarre encounters where people felt they knew me enough to make absolute fools of themselves. You know what I don't understand about men? The male desire to be seen naked when they're like disgusting. I feel like if I had the body a lot of men who like to reveal themselves had, I would keep that shit hidden. I guess that's the kink is that they're disgusting and they want to like rub it in your face. If I was near Pamela Anderson, I'd be like, how do I hide all of my flaws the best? How do I only show her the best part of myself? If I was near Pamela Anderson, I would stand behind her and I'd be like, do not perceive me, Pamela. I just want to have a conversation with you. I would love to chat with Pamela Anderson through one of those like church confessional booths. Just give her all your confessions. Let her know your sins first. No, I want to have a conversation. I just don't want to be perceived. So then she says that's when things really turned for her. She gets noticed everywhere. After that, it became a constant. No time to process my feelings about it. No frame of reference. My life was changing quickly and it was something I accepted and learned to deal with over time. Baywatch had been calling her. They had her phone ringing off the hook. She just kept ignoring it. I think it was just too far and she didn't want to go to the audition. So she ends up going to the audition because her boyfriend was auditioning and I agreed to accompany him. And when she got there, they were like desperate to cast her more. The producers wanted to know more about me to create a character. We spoke about my grandfather and how I loved the ocean, animals, crystals, and how I could feel energy. That's how CJ came about. The bohemian free spirit who loved incense and candles, a healer and an animal whisperer, a true reflection of me. So that I find really interesting because in other versions, especially in the show, they're obsessed with making it seem like she wanted more for her Baywatch character, that she was too big for the show and she felt unseen by that show. But she is very proud of that character and the character was based off of her. And she also doesn't put a lot of stock in being fulfilled from that gig. She said, I love the physicality of doing my own stunts, diving, driving jet skis. It was so much better than being on a soundstage. I ended up making my career choice based on quality of life. Baywatch paid less, but it wasn't about that. The scripts were easy. My photographic memory came in handy. I mean, she just had fun doing it. And I think that that's okay. But I feel like men are obsessed with being like, she was actually much smarter than that. You don't have to be your smartest self in everything. You're allowed to have fun. So she becomes hugely famous. At the beginning, the Tool Time show was bigger, but by the end, it was one of the biggest shows in 150 countries. And there was also this thing called the Pamela Clause, which is that a lot of international broadcasters would only buy episodes that she was in. Home Improvement was the Tool Time show. My first film was a classic. I played a concubine who also happened to have a secret twin. Snapdragon co-starred Stephen Bauer. Looking back, I think I did a pretty good job in that film. I had read acting the first six lessons before we started filming, and I tried to apply it to my work. So she becomes hugely famous. Fidel Castro wants to meet her. She's like going all over the world. She felt that she was ready to meet someone who got her. I needed someone to see me through the fog. How could they? I was guilty of painting my own self-image, but nobody knew how far I'd come. Layered in transparencies, projections magnified. How could I expect anyone to love me enough to see through it all? They had nothing to go on but this image being flung into the world. No matter how hard I tried, the image was bigger than me and always won. My life took off without me. It felt superficial, materialistic. I joked that my breasts had a career of their own and I was just tagging along. She also talks here about having a breast augmentation that she really wishes she hadn't done. I understand that sometimes it might be worth it or necessary. In my case, it really wasn't. It was just an impetuous, shallow decision, unthought through, a part of my charm. This is when I decided to turn my kind of activism into something full force. I wanted to share the international attention I was getting with something more meaningful. Animal welfare continued to be a priority, so she starts to work with PETA. Story is so unique and her experience on this planet is so unique. 
that when she talks about herself, I'm very interested and fascinated and I trust her. But when she tries to apply her experiences to general truths, I'm like, Pam, you don't know what you're talking about. Fame isn't something you can pursue. And it's certainly not something you can stop, even if you want to. It just happens. And with it, the craziest moments. I'm sorry, but like in the 21st century, fame goes to those who pursue it hottest. For her to stay in L.A. instead of getting back on the plane to Canada, that is her pursuing fame. I don't think that people deserve the level of scrutiny that comes with mainstream success, but I do think that there are ways to step back from it that people can choose to do or not do. I agree. So she starts traveling a ton and she says, I made it a habit to go to museums, historical sites and galleries and to talk to local people everywhere I traveled. My thirst for knowledge. I was an empty vessel and I was filling and filling me insatiable. She then tells the story about a time that she was in Uruguay and she's supposed to do a meet and greet and it turns into a rowdy crowd. Rocks and sticks started being thrown. It was turning into mayhem. A rock hit me in the head as the crowd yelled, we love you, Pamela. I was starting to get scared. Her bodyguard had to grab her and put her in a van and the windows were broken. The crowds were rocking the van and almost rolled us. As far as you could see, there were teenage boys, thousands of them. They tore down the stage I was meant to stand on. My clothes were torn too. My mom was watching CNN and thought that poor girl. Then she realized it was me. And I really think that this is such an interesting almost metaphor for her whole life. And the, the way that people love her is violent. Yeah. All the love that she's surrounded by is this violent obsession. Life is a mystery, but when you're ready for one with some real twists and turns, some real captivating stories, immerse yourself in June's journey as June Parker, where you can investigate beautifully detailed scenes set in the decadent 20s to solve her sister's murder. You'll keep coming back to explore new scenes, knowing the next clue is always in reach. June's Journey is my favorite game to play when I need a little escape into my cell phone. Sometimes social media, the real world, it's just too much and you want to give yourself a little treat at the end of a long day. And that's when I pop over to June's Journey to solve some serious mysteries. I feel like it's a fun way to exercise my brain while I'm having a little bit of fun. June's Journey has tons of fun and unique features to keep you entertained. Build your very own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club, and you even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Pick up where you left off to uncover new secrets or start your investigation today and download June's Journey, available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Finally, there is a solution to organizing your fast-paced lifestyle. With the Weekender bag from Base, gone are the days of having to sacrifice style for function. You'll be able to keep track of all of your things while also dressing to impress everywhere you go. Easily transition from day to night, boardroom to bar with Base. We love our Base luggage and we have an offer for you. Go to basetravel.com slash worm for 15% off your first purchase. I have the Base Weekender bag in black and it is the sleekest, cutest way to transport so much stuff in an easy to carry item. I mean, I overpack like you wouldn't believe. It is so hard for me to go out of town for two days without bringing three to four pairs of shoes. And Base has a separate shoe compartment. It's so easy to put so much stuff in one little bag and not feel overwhelmed by bags and droopings and things. I love making my overpacking feel like less of a problem with Base. Base has thought of everything. They have 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushioned handle, built-in weight indicators if you tend to pack over that 50-pound limit, washing bags for your dirty clothes, and all the interior pockets you need to keep organized. Their luggage comes in multiple sizes and colors, and for shorter trips, the Weekender bag is so functional. That's what Claire and I use, and it even has a place to store your shoes separately. Every piece is made to look better with miles, so you don't have to worry about it in cargo or overhead. 
And Base has over 30,000 five-star reviews. That is so many people who love these bags as much as I do. Right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash worm. Go to basetravel.com slash worm for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash worm. So then we meet Tommy Lee. Okay, so this story, the way they meet is told exactly the way it's told in the Hulu series and the Tommy Lee book. And I kind of almost feel like it's so similar that it's one of those things where nobody's actually telling it from memory anymore. They're telling it from the story that that has been told, if that makes sense. I really do think if everybody was remembering it, how they remembered it, everybody's story would be slightly different because that's how memory works. But what we're seeing now is like family lore that's been told time and time again until everyone has one cohesive story. So it's not super interesting to me just because I've seen it before. But basically, the story is it's New Year's Eve. She owned a bar. He was there. She's so hugely famous. She just skips ahead to the fact that she owns a bar. Tommy thinks she specifically sent him a shot. He goes over. Her friend is like, get out of here. He licks her face. She licks her friend's face. He's like, I'm obsessed with you. She says, I'm staying at the chateau. And he calls her nonstop all night. She has a little bit of purposeful naivete, I think. She says, when I left the hotel, there was no easy way for him to track me down. A few months later, he finally did. I don't think it was impressive that he tracked her down. She was extremely famous. And at that point, he was very famous. So it's not weird that he was able to have his people call her people. He's calling her at the hotel and she picks up. Out of nowhere, I channeled a voice, not my own, deep and sexual and purred. I want 24 hours with you and then I never want to see you again and hung up. I looked at my friend and smiled and said, there, I'm sure he won't call back. Of course he'd call back. That's the hottest thing anybody's ever said. Yeah. So she's running out of home to go to Cancun and he calls her and she's like, I can't talk. I'm going to Cancun. He shows up in Cancun. She's there for a work trip. And she's like, he'll never be able to find me. I told my guards not to let him in. She's like, he can't come in. I told everybody at the hotel, if you see him in with the tattoos, kick him out. Anybody with tattoos, they can't be here. And then for some reason, on the last night of the trip, she's like, should we just call Tommy and see what he's doing? And this is what happens in every other thing we've seen, too, where the last night she's like, you know what? Let's just see what he's up to. She ends up extending her trip. They spend the night together. They're married the next day. They go back home on the airplane and realize they don't know a thing about each other. She doesn't even know what his real last name is. The news has already broken, though, because they took all these photos on a disposable camera and got it developed at a one-hour photo shop in Mexico. So duplicates have been made and sold to the press. When they land, it's just a swarm of paparazzi, and everybody in her family is, like, heartbroken that she got married without telling anybody. Yeah, I mean, she is still very close to her family, and they're all like, wow, we really thought we'd be there for your wedding. Tommy was the man of my dreams, so handsome, tall, fun, covered in a thoughtful story of tattoos. I can almost guarantee you that that story is not thoughtful. So there we have this super intense living in bed, having sex all the time. Our lovemaking was always tender, delicious, never dark or weird or trying too hard. We were connected. Sex was fun. Our bodies were in sync and we craved being close, never far out of reach or out of sight from one another. It was a challenge. We couldn't move around easily. We were always photographed, chased, provoked. We tried to get used to it, but we were wearing down fast. So Tommy is... Pretty early on getting into fights with paparazzi. He's also like obsessive with her. My new husband was with me on set every minute. He'd wait for me naked in my trailer. And when I came back to rest between scenes, he'd purposefully mess up my hair and makeup and unlace my corset. A tactic he used to spend more time with me. Because I was his, he said, he wanted his wife time. All of his antics kept getting us in trouble. One day, Tommy punched the producer in the face after he'd been told to go home. I mean, that is... Not fun and silly. She said it was a challenging time. I hardly slept. I was working constantly between the movie and Baywatch. She was shooting barbed wire at this point. And then she also said I needed to be on 24-7 and yet I could barely stay awake. So she gets into diet pills, which are not good for her. She said it helped her stay up, but then her weight went down fast. She lost like 20 pounds and started to look skeletal. She also lived on edge because she was so worried about upsetting Tommy. Everyone began to get concerned. He was so angry and jealous when I had scenes with other men, especially if I was kissing someone else. That was out of the question. 
They started changing the dialogue and scenes if they saw Tommy coming. I even wore a pager on the back of my bathing suit on set. 007 meant call Tommy now. Baywatch was like my family and they could see how the stress and pressure and desire to make everyone happy was affecting me. One day she doesn't show up to set, so her driver comes to her condo and finds her unconscious on the floor. I'd been at the end of my rope. I was confused, sad, tired, and not in my right mind. I'd gotten to the bathtub the night before and tried to swallow a bottle of Advil with vodka, sinking slowly underwater. But luckily, I couldn't stand the taste of hard alcohol and the nausea forced me out of the tub. So then she says, the day before, Tommy had rammed his car into the makeup trailer, punched the cabinets out in the makeup room, and thrown me into his car, driving off the set, tires spinning. He dropped me off at my condo and went who knows where. I cried all night. I couldn't take it anymore. I loved Tommy, and I hated more than anything to upset him. I mean, he causes a scene on set. She tried to kill herself. Because of how stressful he was, and how aggressive, and how jealous, and how controlling. When my doctor came in, my brother was furious and screaming at Tommy, saying he was killing me and most definitely killing any chance I had at a career. That's true. But everybody calmed down when the doctor presented a fact. The doctor said I was pregnant. So she goes on bed rest and then has a miscarriage. But I think that this kind of like resets them for a little bit, and then immediately she gets pregnant again. So she's pregnant again, and this is Brandon. She's over the moon. She's so happy to have a baby. And this is what she's wanted for a long time. Before she met Tommy, she said she was coming into a part of her life where she was so ready to have a family. We met every milestone with cheers and tears. We were all together every minute so in love. On their first post-baby night out, Tommy gets into a fight with a paparazzi at the Viper Room. It ends up being a massive lawsuit. And I think this is where he ends up on probation. The paparazzi made our lives extremely difficult. They would antagonize, especially Tommy. Any man would want to protect his wife and family. But the lawsuits kept stacking up. They go to therapy to try to get through it. But they just keep adding fines. And then, of course, very quickly, they became pregnant again and had their second son, Dylan Jagger Lee. Pregnancy suited me. I had more energy than ever, and I was lucky that Tommy loved my pregnant body. She had also moved her parents into Malibu at this time. They were living in the condo I kept on Point Doom. I didn't trust anyone to help with our children other than family. We had no nannies. Tommy and I were going to raise our children on our own. And then the sex tape leaks. She says that she has not watched it to this day. Tommy did. He told me that they spliced together a lot of different things that made it look like we were filming ourselves having sex all the time. He said it was nothing too bad, but bad enough to be hurtful to me, and he was so sorry. We never made a sex tape. We just filmed each other always and lived a sexy, passionate life. Sweet newlyweds. I felt strange, liquid melting, leaving my body once again. Then I looked at my growing belly. I had to be strong, realizing for the first time that this was not one of those times I could disappear. I had to stay present. I had to stay in my body. I had to feel this and find a way through it. So they try to sue. And as we know, this sex tape was not distributed by one distributor. A guy put it on VHS tapes because he couldn't get a proper distributor. And they sold it through a website. It was all very all over the place. It was hard to find one person to sue, it seems. They end up finding a distributor to sue. And they have a series of depositions that are extremely hard on her because no one cares about her. I was seven months pregnant with Dylan at the time. I was feeling strong when I walked in the room, but my heart sank when I saw that there were naked photos of me blown up and placed behind the lawyers across the table. Such a cruel tactic apparently done to prove I didn't care about being nude publicly. They explained I had no right to privacy because I'd appeared in Playboy, and then came question after invasive question about my body, sexual position, sexual preferences, locations I had sex in, and suggestions that I probably liked the attention. I thought, what does any of this have to do with them stealing or selling private property? Ed told me that I didn't have to answer their questions, but it all seemed so ridiculous. It was hard to keep my mouth shut. I endured days of harassment from the lawyers and from the scumbag, the tape's evil distributor sitting at the end of the table, pathetic and small, And then they had to do separate depositions. They couldn't be in the room with each other. I did my best to stay calm. But it really takes a toll on her. And they end up dropping the lawsuit for their own sanity. She's like, I had a newborn baby at home and I was seven months pregnant. I just couldn't handle the stress. 
It was one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through. It's still a great cause of pain for all of us. It ruined lives starting with our relationship, and it's unforgivable that people still to this day think they can profit from such a terrible experience, let alone a crime. That Hulu documentary was humanizing the guy who stole and did revenge porn on her. Yeah. And that's why I'll never forgive Seth Rogen. And we will be talking about this a lot on the Patreon this week. The Hulu series, Pam, Tommy, what actually happened. Maybe we'll get Troy on because he knows a lot about their breakup and the actual police records about what happened and why he went to jail. And just like, honestly, low-key fuck Seth Rogen. High-key. I do think Seth Rogen is a really bad person. Stop making vases and acting like you're a good person. He has a jolly old belly laugh, and people think that that means he's a nice guy. No matter how strong we thought we were, it took its toll. Tommy and I were overwhelmed. We were chased by paparazzi while rude comments flew, even when we were holding our boys. This is where I'm like, Pam, no matter how strong we thought we were, five pages before she was driven to attempt suicide because of how possessive and scary he was. Even though she says these things that are true about Tommy, he was punching producers. He was undermining my chance of success. He drove me to attempt suicide. She can't ever fully say how awful it was. I guess one, because of her sons and two, I think she really does have this romanticized idea of how wonderful the highs were. But the lows were so low. The lows were so low. And I think because of the volatile relationship her parents showed, the highs were higher than any of her other relationships, which were all just as violent. It feels to her like this was the best it was ever going to be, I think. I also think she thought this is what love was. She looked up so much to her parents and she thought love is feeling so overwhelmed by passion that you like hit somebody. I don't know. Obviously, she goes to therapy and reads and I'm sure she knows objectively that's not right, but she can't unknow it in her bones. We were so tired, so overwhelmed. One night, both babies were settling down and Tommy was on the floor rocking himself back and forth, holding his head and mumbling, what about me? I want my wife back. I was cranky, sleep deprived, holding Dylan while Brandon was in his playpen, reaching out for me and crying, wanting to be picked up. I told Tommy that I'd call my parents to come help just so we could talk and be together. I went to the phone, but he grabbed it from me saying, no, I don't want them here. I snapped at him. Then fucking help me. You have to grow up, Tommy. It's not just about you anymore. I had never spoken to him like that before, and he lost it. It was a Tommy I'd never seen before, didn't recognize. His eyes went black as he grabbed the phone away from me, twisting my arm as I was holding Dylan in the other. My nail tore off, blood dripping everywhere. The kids were so frightened. I picked up Brandon, too, but he slid frantically down my leg. Tommy ripped Brandon off me and threw me and Dylan into the wall. I was so scared he was hurt. He was screaming and he was only seven weeks old. Jesus Christ. So she panics and calls 911. They come. When they asked me if there was a gun in the house, I naively told them, yes, there was a Glock handgun in our bedpost. Tommy was on probation and was immediately arrested. He went to jail. Our hell began. The divorce from Tommy was the hardest, lowest, most difficult point in my life. He wrote to me every day from jail, but I wouldn't talk to him or visit him. I was crushed. I still couldn't believe the person I loved the most was capable of what had happened that night. We were both devastated, but I had to protect my babies. I mean, she even tries to justify his behavior here and says that she found out he was taking steroids during this time and that might have been the cause of his violent outbursts. But what about the cause of all of his other violent outbursts? Yeah, she even says, but then we all search for any excuses for the people we love. The rest of my life, my relationships have paled in comparison. My relationship with Tommy may be the only time I was ever truly in love. I know a lot of that may have to do with his being Brandon and Dylan's father, inherently children of the memory of the love it took to make them. And every time I look at them, I saw Tommy. Nothing I did could stop the pain. There was no replacement. I felt like a failure. I blamed myself and I blamed Tommy for the fact that we could not keep the most important relationship of our lives together for the boys. We let them down. I really don't think she let them down. No, I don't think so at all. I also hate that she's like, I naively told him there was a gun. Tommy was going to go to jail. 
And I feel like we see this both in her and his versions is this idea that it's like, oh, we had one mistake where we accidentally told him that he had a gun. But like, I always feel like this is the thing, like the thing that got him into jail really wasn't that bad. He didn't do anything wrong. He just happened to have a gun when he was on probation. But it's like the reason the police were there in the first place is because he threw his wife and child, newborn, his seven week old, to the wall. He had a history of violence. The reason he was on probation is because of his history of violence. There is this really common thing with celebrity that because their lives are so unique, they feel very untouchable. So they get away with so much shit. And then when there's one thing they don't get away with, that feels like an unfair anomaly, not the fact that they have a hundred other things that they have gotten away with. And it seems like just after Tommy, she meets Kid Rock at a concert for charity. What does she call him? Bob? I think her and Kid Rock had known each other because he was friends with Tommy. Okay. Bob Rock. Bob called Tommy to say he wants to marry Pamela. Tommy is like, I'll fucking kill you. But she and Kid Rock get married anyway. Her best friend at this time is David LaChapelle. They were best friends and they were always partying together. The photographer who famously, I mean, there's a a lot of famous David LaChapelle photographs. Britney Spears on the cover of Rolling Stone. He's always sexualizing young girls. He's gay and Bob doesn't believe it. He doesn't trust them together. He's always shooting her. He shoots this cover for Details Magazine. David would call to tell me one of our covers was that, and I would just reply, great, and move on to discuss something else. He'd ask, do you want to see it? And I'd tell him, not really. He'd laugh and tell me that I was the only person he had ever met who acted this way, the least ambitious person on the planet. It was sincere, archetypal. My life was pure fate, my humble offering to the world. So her and Bob get married. They kind of elope, and then they have a big wedding in Detroit, and they start spending a lot of time in Detroit. And this is like the most star-studded Midwest guest list I've ever fucking seen in my life. I feel like none of these names actually mean that much, but it felt very intense. They would hang out with Bob Seger, Hank Williams Jr., ZZ Top, Uncle Cracker, Eminem, Chelios. The kids were playing sports with Chelios and Peyton Manning. It's a very big deal. They'd play golf with John Daly. At times, our differences were so apparent, I'd leave to take time to think. Then I'd have Mr. Omet Erdogan, the founder of Atlantic Records and Legend, call me on Bob's behalf and try to convince me to give him another chance. She said that like she would leave. And then show up at a hotel and there would be Bob and his boss, which is like a really weird thing. Can you imagine calling your boss and be like, help me get back together with my wife? And he'd be playing a song for her in the hotel and she'd give him another chance. Yeah, this whole relationship takes place over the course of like seven pages. So we don't really know the ins and outs of the on again, off again. It finally all fell apart when they go to a Borat screening at their friend Ron and Kelly Meyer's house where Steven Spielberg, Rick Rubin, Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese were. Steven Spielberg and Laird Hamilton feels like a weird combo. So she didn't tell Bob that she was in the movie. I forgot about the part in the film that referenced the sex tape. Bob stormed out, calling me a whore and worse. He was embarrassed and his reaction was not thought through. Laird yelled, don't get mad at Superwoman when she busts out her cape. After I chased Bob to his car, he peeled out, leaving me there alone. I turned back and apologized and asked if anyone would give me a ride home. When I walked in, Bob was smashing a photo on the wall. He said he was sick of waking up to a photo of me and David LaChapelle every day. But it wasn't me. It was Marilyn Monroe and Burt Stern. We broke up. I didn't stay in touch with Bob. And then she talks about one time at the MTV Video Music Awards when she saw Bob on the red carpet, turns around and sees Tommy on the red carpet. Tommy pulled her into his lap at one point, and this sets Bob off. And they start fighting while Alicia Keys is singing No One. Boys will be boys, she says. So then she has this kind of beautiful chapter where it's like a moment of peace after all of this craziness. She's rebuilding her house in the colony in Malibu and they get a small plot of land and put a trailer there, which I didn't realize. I thought a trailer was like an RV. I didn't realize it's a small house, but they have this cute little house right on the beach. Every morning her sons wake up and go surfing with the boys in town. She goes out and gets some burritos and then drives them to school. She goes on a hike through Pepperdine every day. 
and the minister who works there becomes her good friend and they walk every single day and talk about life and philosophy. She, through the rest of her life, always seems to find a wise older person who just wants to talk about life and philosophy with her. She seems really lovely to just chat to. She's so open to ideas. They would have guests visit them all the time. Vivian Westwood and her husband, Andreas Kronfeller, would visit the indigenous activist, Leonard Peltier, Jürgen Teller, Richard Prince visited her, Warner Herzog, the Queens of the Stone Age. Everybody would just come to her trailer and she would make her famous waffles for everybody in town. And she says, my boys would just let me know how many friends were coming and I'd get to make in stacks of them. Kids in the park knew that they could come to me with anything. I saw myself in some of them and wanted to support them with an open heart, lots of food and love, like what had been done for me in my early life. Not everybody was as lucky as my boys and they knew that. And we'd make sure that we helped others when they needed it. I mean, what a dream life. <laughs> Should we just get a house in Malibu? I mean, when she says the park, like she lives in a trailer park. I'm like, Malibu is like the most expensive place in the world. Who are these poor kids living in Malibu? <laughs> That is the thing is every single celebrity memoir we've read that has a time in Malibu. And I know Malibu has come up. But the way that they all talk about our shabby little apartment in Malibu, our rickety shack by the beach. I'm like, is that a $1 million rickety shack, though? At one point, she's like, we were so lucky to have good schools around us in Malibu. And I'm like, yeah, rich people live in Malibu. This is not a long time ago. Her sons are like 25 now. Ten years ago, Malibu was fancy. She does this stint in Vegas where she does a magic show with Hans Clock. I don't know him, even though I'm a big magic fan. She loves to be on stage. It's really interesting how live performance feels like it really was her mode. So we're on page 162. There's about 60 pages left. And the rest of this is just like listing all of her cool friends. She talks about backstage. Her friends would always come and hang out. Amy Winehouse, well-known drag queens, Elaine Lancaster and Lady Bunny. They'd all come just hang out. Her longtime friend, the boxer and poker player, Rick Solomon. So she would fly four times a week to Vegas to do this show and then fly back to take her kids to school the next day. And she still would often have her makeup and glitter. I really looked in the mirror in the mornings. I'd laugh, though. I'd think glitter doesn't make me a bad mom. The state of some of those cars was worse. Sandwiches jammed in the backseat pockets, empty chip bags, dirty socks, empty water bottles. Everyone alive is a mess. We're all just doing the best we can. Then at one point, her driver was playing poker with Rick Solomon and was down so much money. And Rick said, well, if Pamela Anderson marries me, your debt is forgiven. And then he upped the ante. He threw in that I'd have to have sex with him right then. Calling his bluff, I said, OK. Rick was a handsome guy, quite the character, and we'd known each other for years. He'd been chasing me ever since I first met him. So I called him into the bedroom, laid down on the floor, teasingly pulled up my dress over my head, naked from the neck down, and said, let's do this. He laughed and pulled my sweater away from my face, looked deep in my eyes, and kissed me hard. We made love right there. So then she actually marries him. But then a few months later, her assistant found what he thought was a crack pipe in the Christmas tree. People had warned me that Rick was a serious addict. I'd never seen that side of him. It seemed like an exaggeration. Rick insists to this day that my assistant planted the pipe in the tree to break us up, but I couldn't risk it. We had the marriage annulled and remained friends. And it sounds like they're friends to this day. He pops up throughout the rest of the book. That whole story is so fucking crazy. To be like, I was doing a magic show in Vegas and I got married as part of a bet. And then he was on crack. So we got divorced. It's just two pages. Why would you put a crack pipe in a Christmas tree? What does a crack pipe look like? Imagine a regular pipe. <laughs> and then the next page is the story about how she was doing a shoot for Vanity Fair and Tom Ford was there. He put me in a new Terry Mugler corset from the archives and started pulling the strings, pulling and pulling. He finally stopped and turned me around, looked me in the eyes and said, you have no organs. You must never leave this house without a corset. Then he snapped his fingers to demand his measuring tape. He turned to me again and continued to pull me to 17 inches. We both gasped. He said he could go further, but I might break in half. The seamstress helped me back into the creamy white dress. Okay, so these two stories together, 
are just like so weirdly sad because her body is just this vessel and this object. The way that these men are like, you owe me a debt. I'll have sex with Pam in exchange. And then this other man, Tom Ford, even to him, her body is just this insane marvel where look how little she can. We can pull and pry her and almost snap her in half. I think she's almost found this piece with saying, it's okay. I'll let people do whatever they want with my body so that then I can have these experiences. And I think she's at peace with it, but it's odd to read. I don't know that I would recommend it to other people. It seems like she's okay, but I don't know. It's very jarring to see the way that she has just said that this is how I will proceed. I think that there are people who say that they will do that. They'll say like, okay, my body can get me X, Y, and Z. So I will use that so that I can do my dreams. And then they forget their dreams and they never actually do it. And I think that she did it. I mean, she's explored the world. She's seen things. All she wants is to learn and take in new experiences. And she goes and takes in new experiences. I feel like a lot of celebrities, you read interviews from them and they're like, yeah, I've been to over 100 countries doing press tours and this and that. But when you're on these tours, you never get the chance to take in any sites or explore any history or culture. And she's like, no, if I'm in a place, not only does she take in the history and the culture, but she seeks out causes and people she can help anywhere she goes. I don't know. I agree with you earlier when you said it won't work for everyone and it obviously doesn't. But there's like a lot of power in the way she's decided to live her life for her. I think most people can't make that division between like body and self so easily. No, I think it's really difficult and probably not something I'd recommend. And I think the way that she's constantly talking about feeling like molecules that are like falling out and feeling like she has no borders and she doesn't know where she ends and the world begins. I don't know how many people could feel that way for decades and maintain their sanity. But then she just keeps going with all the people she's met. She becomes really good friends with one of the co-developers of The Simpsons. She talks about knowing him as he dies. I would love to read a series of interviews by her. The way Judd Apatow has that book where he interviewed a bunch of comedians, and that's just the whole book. I just want one from Pamela Anderson where she just, like, interviews people of the world. Yeah, I do think, like, really interesting, smart people are very charmed by her and enjoy having her in their company. I feel like she just sneaks into the group and is just this open vessel who's excited to hear from you. Anytime I traveled for work anywhere in the world, I would research the pressing animal rights issues in the area and try to act on it to use my influence for good. And then she talks about how she has really tried to advocate with respect instead of being the typical Westerner who always wants to impose their annoying points of view and not always shared opinions on others. And an example she gives is she goes to Tokyo for 24 hours and she wanted to wear a shirt that said stop the hunt about the hunt for dolphins for aquariums. The authorities told her not to do so. And she's like, I might just do it anyway. But then I had something better up my sleeve. I searched for local passionate activists. I decided then and there that whenever possible to support organizations that are working inside a country, those who are aware of the culture and the unique sensitivities. There are many ways to navigate. I found that being sensitive and respectful is effective everywhere I go. There are kind-hearted people all over the world willing to do the work in their own backyard. And I think that's like a really good message and something that a lot of people miss that she's like, I'm not the first person to think about animals. Why don't I go to these countries and ask the people in these countries, how are you thinking about animals and how can I support the already existing institutions that are trying to do good work? And I think that that's a very productive way to think about it. That requires a lot of conscientiousness and like selflessness that a lot of celebrities don't have. So then she just talks about all the different people she's worked with. She has some weird experiences in Russia, man. She goes and speaks to the Kremlin. And then she goes to some oligarch in Russia's house and he takes her to some secret town he has under his house. And it was freaky. She's really good friends with Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks guy. My friendship with Julian has been invigorating, sexy, and funny. She feels that we have all let Julian down so far. 
he is a mild-mannered person, not a physical threat to anyone, and he is being broken down, psychologically tortured. He doesn't belong in a supermax prison. He was bringing light to secrets and corruption in governments, and now he's paying the price for all of us. His idea that we must stay true to ourselves and the planet and never stray from our principles. We must support one another when we are brave enough to use our skill set at its highest value and do all that we can to keep each other safe, even though inevitably some risk their lives more than others do. Julian's mom is someone who pointed out to her that she is a smart and thoughtful person. She says the way you're portrayed is not right because the way I utilized my image, she told me to stop posting sexy photos on social media to post authentic ones with my sons or pets with less makeup, not retouched. She thought it would help me become stronger and a more serious activist because my intelligence was being overshadowed. I was touched by her sentiment and concern and appreciated her advice and took it under serious consideration. And she seriously considers it and is like, ooh, fuck that. Women have fought so hard so that we don't need to limit ourselves. And she really says, I am a serious activist and a sexy person. Why can't I be both? If the cartoon image of me was what got me through the door, so be it. And so I continued the work the only way I knew how. It was too late to turn back now. It would take time and effort to try to change people's opinion of me. So she talks about being in Australia and she writes an open letter to the prime minister there and says, listen, you got to help Julian. Don't just listen to the U.S. because they're stronger in bullying you. Mr. Morrison responded cheekily to the press by saying he'd love to meet me if he could bring a few of his buddies along. That didn't go over well. Women were unimpressed with his insensitive remarks, which by then had reached the international press. Australia and many countries are so indebted to the United States or afraid of it that they wouldn't dare go against it. It's more complex than that, obviously, but that's the bottom line. Unfortunately, the world is set up that way. I wish we could expand our flexibility without being so emotionally charged. And then she talks about her boys. The biggest loves of all, of course, are my children. Always and every minute, my beautiful boys radiate my heart, my mind, my soul. She sent them to boarding school in Canada because she feels like the way that she found her strength is her Canadian sensibilities. Yeah. And she also believes that she doesn't want to be a helicopter parent, that you have to like let them be strong on their own. And there was this very fancy all boys boarding school in her town for the rich kids. And she always wanted to go. And she was so excited to send her boys there. And she says she cried and cried and cried when she sent them, but that they're better for it. And her parents were just down the road. Impressively, they stuck it out over the years together and they are now more madly in love inseparable. One is lost without the other. I knew my kids needed consistency and structure, and Seanigan would supply them with the positive male role models that they were missing and a good Canadian education. I mean, I wouldn't want to read my kids in L.A. either, so I get it. <laughs> Especially with Tommy Lee as our dad. After they graduated, we encouraged them to pursue a college education. Both boys felt like they didn't fit into the traditional universities, so they left during their first semesters. It didn't come without consequence. Tommy and I told them if they left school, they were on their own. Our kids were responsible for their choices at this point. We were there for them, but not to support them financially if they made a tough decision to not stay in school. So a few pages previously, she talks about setting her son up with an internship. Later, when Brandon was 18, he interned for Vivian in London. It was an unconventional but perfect education. She would send him to museums, and when he returned, she'd ask him which painting he'd save in a fire, sending him back over and over until he knew. Brandon learned all aspects of the business, working in design, PR, even retail. By then, Brandon was old enough for me to get him a membership to the Playboy Club in London, so he had somewhere to go if he needed anything. I told the girls there to keep an eye on him. They most certainly did with no complaints from Brandon. Okay, so when you said you cut him off financially and he was on his own, did you mean you set him up with the most coveted internship I've ever heard of where all he did was go to museums and then tell Vivian Westwood what he liked about them and then go to a Playboy Club that he was paid for where I'm assuming he just got to eat on your tab and have the hottest girls in London make sure he was okay? Is that your tough decision not to stay in school. That's a pretty easy decision to not stay in school. I think that it's the classic. My parents completely cut me off. I had no cash, only their credit card in my back pocket. She was like, he got a job making smoothies and lived on his friend's couch for a while. Okay. And then he made enough money to buy a house in Malibu. And it's like, 
I've made smoothies. She says that he made enough money after some smart financial investments. And I'm like, okay, what was he investing? Smoothie money? (laughs) Or all the money he made at that internship? Because famously, fashion internships pay tons. So she also got him an internship at the stock exchange, and they knew they didn't want to be stockbrokers, but they were inspired by cryptocurrencies, blockchain, and international finance. At 20 years old, Brandon shocked all of us by asking if he could take what remained of his college fund and use it to go to rehab. He wasn't in any trouble, but he was starting to experiment and realized that he might have that thing that ruins people's lives. He made a proactive decision, probably the best of his life. He wanted to do it on his own, not because he had to, but because he wanted to understand who he was. He knew he was genetically loaded and was smart enough to understand what that meant. I'm not going to judge a 20-year-old and I'm not going to judge somebody who struggles with addiction, but what do you mean he went to rehab even though he wasn't in trouble? Great question. (laughs) Something to chew on. And through wise strategy and cutting-edge investments in the arts, Brandon and Dylan made enough money to buy a home together in Malibu. I will say Brandon is now an agent, and you'll never guess whose agent he is. Pam's. And you'll never guess what his first production project was. The story of Pam's life. So yeah, whatever. He's your son. You love him. He's cut off. It's been so rewarding to see how the boys develop their sense of style. Warm minimalism, mid-century, case study homes, sustainability. Blending their homes into the natural environment, putting nature first. She fucking loves her babies. I can't I can't even bat an eye at this because I told everyone on the Patreon that Bug's writing a novel. <laughs> I have to say, though, to be like, my boys have such unique and interesting styles. They live in a Malibu home with warm mid-century undertones and a lot of nature. Florals for spring groundbreaking. <laughs> she then goes on to say... It takes courage, vision, and faith in oneself. To be successful is very hard work. Luck is earned. Is it? Was it? I will say to you, luck just showed up. And to them, luck was inherited. So then she goes to France for a year. And she's like hangs out in Saint-Tropez, meets rich people. She's going to the cafe. She runs into Karl Lagerfeld. He loves her. He's been keeping an eye on her and he knows what she's up to. She has a little dog called Zuzu. All she does is read all day and have lattes and then meet rich people and talk about philosophy and art. And everyone in the town says, bonjour Zuzu. (laughs) It just sounds beautiful. I'm sorry. If I made a fuck ton of money and then raised two boys and just knew all of the fucking arbiters of taste in the world... I would also probably go to a small town in France to just read for a summer. And then she just helps with charities. She helps with the refugees. She just like loves to donate. I guess that's what I do think people should just do. And then she moves to Paris and she just roams around to churches, lighting candles. She goes to a private ballet class. She found a quirky art class. One of her favorite writers is Anais Nin and Henry Miller. All she does is read and look at art. I was soaking it in, evolving, growing, changing, crystallizing a chrysalis. And then she gets really into the Green New Deal, and so she just travels Europe trying to promote it. Our message warned that the poor should not be paying for climate change, yet it is the poor who are once again paying the highest price. I turned to activism and poetry when I was hurting to express myself and to remind myself who I was. It helped me tremendously to be busy doing what I felt was meaningful. I wasn't sure how many times a heart could be broken, I guess as many times as it takes. So she sells her house in Malibu for like a record amount of money, and she goes, it was like a savings account and unconventional as that might sound. A true blessing that has now set me up for the rest of my life, and I am expensive. So I looked it up. I think it sold for over $12 million. She bought it for like 2.9, sold it for 12. And it is funny. She's like, how random that that house made me money. And I'm like, well, that is what we consider the most traditional form of asset. That is why home ownership is one of the most important ways of building generational wealth. Men are my downfall. And I've tried all kinds. The common denominator is me. I realize I'm only at war with myself when it comes to love. She moved back home to Vancouver. And she built the most beautiful, sustainable estate out there that's good for years to come. She's making her parents move there. She's so happy. She just gardens and cooks and is vegan. There are multiple layers to a free spirit. It's not just about being aimless and mindless. It's a pure connection. It's flow. It's adventure. Intelligence doesn't look like any one thing. It's a best-kept secret. It's mysterious. 
For me, it's Singing from the Well by Ronaldo Arenas or the author Nicholas Bouvier's The Way of the World. It's Frida's self-portrait with cropped hair. It's Virginia Woolf's Poignant of Room in One's Own. It's the integrity of Black Panther Angela Davis. It's the jazzy cadence of Kerouac's On the Road. It's James Baldwin's Deep Love Theory or Noam Chomsky's Far Out Lectures. So she's getting back in touch with her mind and body, and she gets offered the role of Roxy in Chicago on Broadway, and she's like, yes, amazing. She had been offered the role before, but it was when her sons were so young, and she was like, I actually don't want to leave and go to New York for a while, and I just trust that this will come back to me. She says as a reward for putting her family first, it comes back. Yeah. So she's in New York. She became obsessed with Fosse and Verdon. And she feels like she's doing them justice. She says, every night on stage in front of everyone, the little girl in me was free. The artist, the inevitable child. The pain evaporated opening night at the first standing ovation. When I was at the theater, I felt safe. When I was on stage, even safer. We are made of music. When hope is shattered, we can be redeemed. I conquered myself with fearlessness, slaying dragons, doubts, and insecurities. I played Roxy, not as a victim, taking a page out of my own playbook. Gushing, I look around and am able to digest where I've come from in a whole new light. A playmate, a small town girl in Hollywood and feel proud of myself. No one else in history has had the same story. I did it all on my own, and I did it against all the odds. I didn't think I'd want to spend this part of my life explaining myself to people. This is just one girl's life, my memories, my experience. This is how I did it. This is my own fable. I can only offer my truth. It would take a lifetime to understand another person. We all have complex, nuanced behaviors that make us who we are or why we are. Acceptance is a better way to go, a delicious assurance. She says, nothing's impossible, it seems, evasive only. You are not alone in this. Keep searching. There's always a mountain to climb. So it just ends with her talking about living alone in Vancouver and handling the fact that, you know, she's not going to have a partner. She's moved her parents in. And just every day she likes to wake up and be in touch with nature. I guess I think that that's kind of beautiful. I think that if she finds that she is not picking people that are going to make her life better, then she's chosen to live her best life alone. But she still has a family. Yeah, she has her two kids who love her and she lives for She's traveled the world. She's had so many experiences. And to come back to where she started and be back with it's just her and her parents again. I don't know. She is just the spirit that's like gone around and her body was the vessel that opened the door. And she just every day woke up and experienced things. I've truly never come across somebody else like it because she seems so unchanged. She's unchanged, but deeply collected. And by that, I mean, she's like a collage of things that she's experienced. Although she is all these moving particles and pieces, there does seem to be a strong core to me. The core of who she is is somebody who's looking to learn. Yes. And because that that's who she is and who she always has been, that is not something that can be filled ever wholly. So she's still open to learning as she always was. I mean, to go back to the first lines of this whole book, the intro, the lines blur between dreams and reality, where I end and the world begins. To live in dream is a wicked dance. My dreams often come true, a curse and a blessing. She really is just this boundaryless person with no borders. I do feel like she's just this energy that vibrates around and exists. Yeah, I mean, she is like a bright, warm light of a person. You can sit there and be like, she's not that smart. She's not that this, whatever. But you cannot deny how many truly intelligent, interesting people have swarmed around her, how many experiences she's had. I guess I do think she is that smart. You can sit there and not be changed by this book, but you cannot deny how much life she has lived and how many experiences she's had. I kind of think one of the smartest things you can be is someone who knows that there's stuff you don't know. She is just so constantly aware of how much there is to learn, and she goes after it. She wants to learn anything and everything. I think to have so much trauma and to remain unhardened and still open to love and trying to make the world better is such an incredibly difficult thing to do. She had all these incredible opportunities thrust at her, and every day she just kind of like woke up, took it for what it was, and is like, how can I use this for the better? Yeah. I think it is so impressive to not feel that need to change how people think about you, but to want to do good. It was a really interesting book. I'm excited for her series. 
fuck Tommy, fuck Hulu, mostly fuck Seth Rogen. Yeah. But I guess in a way, thank you, Seth Rogen, because you pushed her. To write this book? Yeah. But I want you to get no credit for it. No. And we won't read your book. I know people like to ask us to read his. Listen, if you guys want to read this book, it takes about three hours. It's mostly poetry. It's a quick, interesting read. If you're somebody who's like, what should I be reading next? There's a lot of names of what she was reading and what she was watching. And I do think it's an interesting, like, reading list at the least. You guys, so on the Patreon, we already talked about what we will be talking about. We love you so much. And Ashley, who do we love the most? We love JoJo O1991. Oh, how I appreciate you for writing this review. Thank you to Eggs Funky Junk. I hope there's no funky junk in your eggs, unless you wanted it that way. Thank you to KD Foti. I would love to see your Foti's graphs. <laughs> Thank you to Create Nickname Sadie. What a beautiful nickname you've created there. Thank you to Ross Leggett. I hope you get a pat on the back for this beautiful review. Thank you to Loose Cannon 911. 911, I'd like to call in and report a perfect review. Thank you to Lucy Abdel. Nothing loose about this tight and perfect review. Thank you to Pink Pop Mash. I hope that you get the mashed potato of your dreams tonight. Thank you to Miranda the Curly. There is nothing I appreciate more than a perfect bouncy curl. Thank you to Jake63468522HKN. Thank you to Jake64468522HKNT. I don't Jake you for granted. Thank you to Mandatory22. It is absolutely mandatory that I thank you and tell you I appreciate you. Thank you to Lil Gazi Maserati. You are the flashy little car of my dreams. Thank you to Kiara Loves Pink. Well, I love Kiara. Thank you to Naomi Burton. You are my absolute dream before Christmas. Thank you to Lara Chanel. You are the most rational reviewer I've ever seen. Thank you to Carrie Rustad. You are a tad too perfect. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I adore you.